Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and I am joined by Dr. Margaret Lee, a PGY2 at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And I am so excited for this special episode, especially as the next academic year kind of sets in. I think one of the things I love doing is talking to clinicians who are so respected and so loved and kind of looking under the hood and asking, hey, how'd you get here? And so today we interviewed Dr. Kelly Graham, the primary care program director, director of ambulatory training, and co-director of a faculty scholarship program at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. So first, we'll go through Dr. Graham's learning journey and how that's changed over time. And then we'll move into how she sets up for lifelong learning, both on a daily basis, but also annually for herself. And then because Dr. Graham wears so many hats, we will get into structures she has in place for time management. And lastly, we will end with how she role models boundaries and how she uses her position of power to help others. Yep. So let's get into this dive. A bit of a personal dive. We hope that you will leave as inspired as we were. So let's start with Dr. Graham's learning journey. So my learning journey, I think if I were to try to give you the big picture of what actually happened that got me here today, which I think I'm incredibly privileged to be a medical educator, to get to teach residents and mentor them and design training programs, was really, I had to overcome a fixed mindset and imposter syndrome. We tell learners, become an open mindset learner. It's the better way to be. It's more efficient. But it's really from a position of privilege that I think we tell people to become that type of learner when oftentimes your learning journey starts very young. And so I'm a first-generation college student. I was raised in a financially disadvantaged family. And for me, the only real ticket out of that life to have a better life was through higher education. It was not going to be through access to private schools or programming outside of school. It was just going to be me grinding it out and getting scholarships and, and essentially being a perfect student. And so how does that translate to everyday learning behaviors? What it meant was that failure just wasn't an option for me. And so when I hear people talk about embrace failure, you know, failure is a great learning opportunity. They're right. Absolutely right. But for me, that was just never true. And I want to give voice to that because I think there's a lot of us in medicine. Not It could put me back to where I started. I can't disappoint my family and myself. And it's my responsibility to make that change so my children can have a better life. So I don't know how others experienced this, but for me, it was compulsive studying to the point of exhaustion. I would take and retake and retake notes until I couldn't sit up anymore. Wow. You know, I have never heard anyone call out how we put growth mindset on this pedestal. And just to be on the same page, we're talking about the aspect of growth mindset here that sees failure as a natural part of the learning process and identifies failure as an opportunity for growth. Which in theory sounds great, but in reality, we don't have the luxury to learn from failures, especially in a system that values getting things right, such as exams on the very first try. Yeah, this even comes up in real life with like first impressions, right? It's really hard to embrace a growth mindset when it seems like we have very little leeway room sometimes to be anything but excellent. I was just going to get in on grade. That was my ticket. So I did it. <laughs> that was my identity. And what came with that identity was secrecy. I don't think that that identity is embraced by the majority of students who end up in medical training. So I had to learn how to be a secret gunner, which meant I had to also have the burden of having these learning behaviors in secret and really making sure that nobody saw them. I had to learn how to look like 
everything was cool, everything was fine. But really, that's not, that wasn't what was happening. It ends in, in emotional exhaustion and burnout. I'd gotten to the end of residency and I was pretty burnt out. Nobody knew. You know, I still had this look on the outside. I was even asked to be a chief resident. I think I was still really good at that secrecy and that imposter syndrome. And here we are defining imposter syndrome as doubting your skills due to internalized fear of being exposed. Oh, I can relate to that internalized fear of being exposed so much. And you want to know the crazy thing, Margaret? I thought I was using all the things that come with imposter syndrome to my advantage. I thought if I kept telling myself I was the dumbest one here, which I would just work harder than everyone and have some reassurance of not being exposed. It was when I had my children that I had my first opportunity to embrace failure and to really learn from it. So I had my children in rapid succession. This is a funny story, but they were born basically a year and a half apart. My methods were super inefficient and no longer sustainable to be a mother and a full-time physician. So I think a lot of us come to this realization when we become parents. For me, I didn't have that extra six hours in the day to let me be my inefficient self and really take my sweet time with things so that it would guarantee that I wouldn't fail at something. So I'm curious, Shreya, how did Dr. Graham change her mindset? So I think a big part of her changing her mindset was not wanting to role model that imposter syndrome for her own children. She wanted to break that cycle of burnout and exhaustion and prevent her children from carrying on the same habits that ultimately would not serve them in the long run. It was a reflection moment for me because I was realizing that this stuff begins around how you praise children, how you model your own learning. How do you model failure? And I was not doing that the way I wanted to for my children. So I had to sort of relearn and reparent my own learning style, which I'm still doing today. I'm still a recovering imposter slash fixed mindset learner. So at this point in the interview, I was so curious. How did she relearn habits that really served her as a lifelong learner and as a mother who really wanted to be present for her children? I had to come to terms with my learning style. It turns out like a lot of people have a little bit of everything. I am like an asymmetrically strong auditory learner. Okay. Don't come at her for identifying a learning style. Yes, I know meta literature has debunked learning styles, but audio was just what worked for her life. Why was I retaking all those notes? It's because I was creating a narrative and a story. I was writing stories about the clotting cascade. I can save so much time by using podcasts. It has been incredibly instrumental to me. Hopping in a podcast for my commute to work and doing so intentionally around clinical questions that I'm getting at the bedside that are not really cementing for me as I'm treating patients. So every Wednesday morning, it's my medical podcast day. And I've been doing that now for years. That's how I studied for the boards. And it's not just that she would maximize her commute, but it was what she would do with that learning that mattered. As an auditory learner, I need to actually didactic teach. So I teach on the topics I treat the most. She would then tell stories she learned from the podcast or elsewhere to her colleagues, to her residents, and to her teams to really build her knowledge base and reputation up that way. And not only did she have a consistent practice to capture the breath of lifelong learning through podcasts and turn those into everyday teaching topics, she also had a consistent practice for the depth of lifelong learning. And she actually put it into advice that she now gives to her residents and early faculty. When you finish your training, you should come up with like three areas that you want to have clinical expertise. You spend the time that it takes to read everything that you need to read to get yourself up to speed. And maybe you do it over a few years and try to become somebody who teaches about this. 
and consult on committees about it. You pick that one thing and you build yourself up to the point where you could run a CME talk on it. And if you're lucky and you work somewhere where you actually can do that kind of stuff or can teach residents annually about that topic. So I did that with hypertension, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia and cardiovascular risk. You know, this is all great. But the thing that I often struggle with, and many listeners probably do, is the consistency aspect. How was she able to do this consistently? My sister and I have this inside joke that we we set our life is all about setting up stations and systems. And just like remember when they would tell you when you learn a procedure, 50% of it is just setting it up right. And then the procedure actually goes very well. It's not the procedure itself that's hard. It's making sure the setup and the consent and everything is done. And then after that, it actually always felt like it was like a rock rolling down a hill. Life is like that too. When you set up a system or a structure that works really well for you, it's easier to fill it with your life, right? Because your life is going to be chaotic and uncertain and disorganized. Oh man, yes. Life is chaotic and messy and disorganized. And I totally agree with the setting up systems and stations, especially the stations aspect with children, right? There's like a coloring station over here. There's another activity station over here that keeps everyone constantly going to the to the TV. <laughs> you know, Shreya, I personally don't have a lot of stations living in a studio. Oh, yes. All oh, the resident life. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, let's get into the systems. I'm curious about the systems she developed to gain expertise in certain topics. I have a couple of subscriptions that summarize key clinical studies in your field. I don't read the emails. I open them. I scan through the titles. And if there's a title in there that's like, yep, I've got to know that, I slide it to a folder called Stuff I Need to Read in May. And I'll get to what that means in a second. Because I can spend two minutes on that email and no more. That's my rule for managing communication, for non-urgent communication. I set a date. I do something called meeting-free days. And these are really important. I clear a day in May. And I do it in May because it's right before the next academic year starts. It's completely blocked, which means my admin cannot schedule any meetings. There's no clinic. That is the day I open that stuff I need to read in May day. And I update all my talks. And I update any visual learning materials that I create, infographics, whatever it is that I use to teach on that topic or to practice medicine for that topic. You know, I feel so relieved in how she offloads keeping up with literature to a folder and then has a week in the year where she knows she'll have the headspace and protected time for it instead of just trying to keep all those articles and tasks in her brain and trying to get it done when she can. Yeah. I often think we like walk around with like a cloud of shoulds over our heads and I should read that latest C. diff guideline. I should read that RCT on that important topic. But I think what we end up actually doing is just walking around with this like sense of overwhelm instead of offloading it, right? Offloading that sense of guilt, offloading that sense of shame. That's so true, Shreya. It all goes back to what she and her sister joke about. Life is all about systems and stations. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. 
And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash Coriam50. We just went over her system for keeping up with literature based on areas one might really want to dive into, but she has another calendar system for time management. If I were to share one or two pearls about time management, the first thing that I would say is that you should manage your time better than your money because it's the most important and precious resource that you have. And no one teaches you how to do this as a trainee at any level. That's such a profound statement. I feel like it's so easy to squander my time. Yeah. And now that I think about it, I'm actually glad we're bringing all this up because I think you really can't talk about lifelong learning without talking about how you actually manage your time to allow for that learning. It's really because there's a framework to use for time management. The basic idea here is that you have to separate what's called deep work. Basically, the brain um, doesn't work well unless you separate your deep work and your shallow work and you bucket them together and block them. And so if you take those principles to your calendar and actually implement them, which means that you block out deep work time. So examples of that would be doing a lit review for your research project, reading about reading your diabetes updates, listening to a podcast about a clinical question that came up that week. Shallow work also needs its own time bucket that you set aside and you really do need to give it its own time. Shallow work is like a gas that will fill up the space of the container. (laughs) It will intrude into your every moment. What is shallow work? It's reading tweets, responding to them, reading emails, responding to them. A lot of communication is shallow work. Checking labs and sending normal labs letters. (laughs) So if it's non-urgent and it takes longer than two minutes, you take that shallow work and you give it its own time in your work cycle as well. So how does she operationalize her shallow work time? As a PCP, Dr. Graham blocks off an hour for shallow work in the morning, her ramp-up time, and an hour of shallow work in the afternoon, her ramp-down time. And then the rest of that admin time is used for whatever deep work she needs. Yeah, and once I saw that schedule, and hopefully we'll try to put something that resembles that in the infographic or show notes, I realized my calendar system after seeing that was just a setup for failure. I schedule something every single hour as if like competing tasks weren't going to pop up. And I just kept doing the same thing every day and not reevaluating my system and adding in that buffer time that I really needed. The only time shallow work is allowed to intrude on the day is if it's urgent or it takes less than two minutes. I always slip and move back into sort of like a bad system and I need to write my course. But the idea is that I have a way to write my course. It takes a lot of practice. I so wish I could go back and tell my younger self what I learned from Dr. Graham and others. I think now I just know myself so much better, my energy better, and I can chunk out my day to meet my energy more. But gosh, it is such a journey to appreciate what works for your learning and constantly course correct along the way. Aside from like a really good calendar system and time management system, and you kind of need a task management system too. It can be a notebook with a pen and an Excel spreadsheet. I use a Kanban board, which is a is a Japanese method for task management. When I started to have to manage a team as a program director and manage research projects, I found that I really did need a peripheral brain. 
And here we're defining peripheral brain as some type of knowledge management system where you store your teaching points or even tasks for a project. And yes, I have seen her Kanban board, by the way, on Trello. And I just want to say, I'm not one to do hyperboles, but yes, she integrates it so seamlessly. She even connects her email. So if anything requires more than two minutes, it gets its own card on the Trello board. All her team members are on it. Um, and so they can keep track of tasks easily. She's really kind of got this figured out. Not only does she have a peripheral brain to keep track of these tasks, she also has a space for important documents such as articles and presentations, which she refers to as reference files. But right alongside of that, you need reference files where you actually take the information and store it because you can't really put information on those. And so mine's pretty simple. I use like documents, Word documents and Dropbox. So each project has a board and a Dropbox folder. And in that folder will be where that all of that like information, like let's say I read all the new studies on hypertension, that's where the summary is going to live, right? So that I can then put it into the slides and into the committee and into, you know, all the places in my actual life. But separating your peripheral brain into a task manager and an information storage is really important. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. And you have to, the key is you have to find the way that works that you're actually going to use. And so I have friends that walk around with index cards in their pocket because that works for them, right? And so knowing that about yourself is really important and trying different things. Wow. I can't help but be inspired by how intentional she is, from her consistent task management system with her Trello to a peripheral brain like Dropbox to organize her new articles. What's important is finding a system that you're actually going to use, even if it's a physical filing cabinet or multiple desktop folders on your computer, whatever really works for you. And this may be a good point to pivot to the fact that she's not just intentional in what she role models at work, but she's also intentional about what she role models when she's off work. And it's something that really came with doing the hard work and having a strong sense of her own identity and who she wants to be. Honestly, for me, as somebody who has a big life outside of my job, that's a really important identity. I decided pretty early on that I wanted to be a co-parent for my children. I didn't want to be a secondary parent or a primary parent. That requires intentionality around how you're spending your time and how much time you're spending at work and how you're making space and time for your life outside of work. My work is really a vessel to just so that I can have a big life outside of work. I love my work and it's part of my identity. And not or, it's an and statement. I am a mother and a friend and a wife and a woman. I have a lot of identities outside of my work that are extremely important to me. I'm really glad we're getting into this because just as important as understanding someone's habits are understanding how they actually set boundaries to embrace all their other identities. You have to model it. Hate speaking for other people. But what I will say is that everybody has the culture of business and everybody is hyperbole, but most people in academic medicine are experiencing this toxic culture and participating in it. And they don't like it. Nobody likes it. If you are privileged enough to have a position where you can begin to role model an alternative, it is incumbent upon you to do that. It's part of my goal for my job was to say we are a team of humans. We have lives outside of this job. We don't email each other after 5 p.m. or on weekends unless it's an emergency and then we call. We give each other our phone numbers and we call each other. If I'm playing a board game with my kid and one of my teammates needs to call me because something's going on, really does not bother me. But if I open up my email and I see eight messages from the night prior, cannot work 
24-7. So we have to respect that communication also can't happen 24-7. This is how our team functions. And I want you to have a life outside of this work so that when you are here, you're present. We're not looking at our phones. We don't have our laptops open. We're with each other. We're present. Role modeling some of these practices is really, really important as a leader. I had to correct a lot of my own behavior, like my urge to go and send an email if I was choosing to work late. As soon as I do that, I don't care what I say to my team. They're watching what I'm doing and I'm normalizing that behavior and they all start doing it. It's like really predictable. So I think it's really important for us in leadership to start to rethink how we provide equity on our teams and like model that. And that busyness doesn't mean more productivity. It just means burnout for a lot of people. So you're not just doing it for yourself. You're doing it so that you can take better care of your team. I love how respecting people's time is a way that she flexes her leadership power and privilege to improve other people's lives. Yeah, what a flex, right? And such a role flip from, I think, how we often see power flexed. You know, Shreya, I'm just in awe. I feel like Dr. Graham is this brilliant clinician for her patients, for her residents, and an expert leader for the team. Not to mention she is just a master manager of herself and her time. Yeah, on top of all that, she's figured out a way to actually be present for her loved ones. Yeah, but you know, as humble as she is, she will also remind you just how many tries it took to get there. The only thing you can expect is that you're going to fail a lot as you get there and that those cycles of failure are how you hone it. I don't think there's ever a moment where you have to say, I'm just not good at this. When you're repeatedly failing, it's really that moment where you look outside and say, what's happening outside of me that's not working? It's more just evaluating yourself first. How do I adjust this swing so that I can get it right? I'm watching my kids right now learn sports and it's amazing how they actually have to spend a lot of hours with intentional practice and learn how to move their body five degrees this way to get those the swing right. I think when you're failing repeatedly like that, really what you need to do is stop Stop trying to work on your swing and start thinking, is there a structure or system around me that's setting me up a failure? Yes, it all goes back to setting up systems and stations. I feel like, Margaret, we probably should have called this episode Systems and Stations. <laughs> I agree. I know everyone defines failures differently, but I appreciate hearing that Dr. Graham was up for bat, took a swing, and even though she may have missed the first time, she gave herself feedback and adjusted for the next time. Absolutely. I'm so curious, Margaret, going through this episode and reflecting on your own habits and systems, I'm curious, have you done anything differently? I know it's you're in a studio apartment, so maybe the stations weren't really changed much. But, but yeah, curious if you can be a little bit vulnerable with us. So one of the things that I implemented from our talk is the importance of course correcting. I've been a lot more conscientious of my learning habits. So I found out what really works for me is not to stay in my bed to study, but to actually go out into the city and find a good place to focus. When I find myself slipping back into bad habits, getting back on the bed, I realize it's not too late to get up, to get out. It's never too late to try again. <laughs> for me, what stood out to me was hearing her call out growth mindset and really giving space to the idea that sometimes being open to failure might not be an option based on your upbringing or other situations or circumstances. And I really then loved hearing how Dr. Graham had to unlearn certain habits that weren't serving her. And I think for me, there was so much unlearning and it took pain actually reflecting back on residency to fellowship and then the, all the other things I had to unlearn when I became a faculty member. And I'm sure there's still more unlearning to do. I think that's kind of how medicine is. It's just a process of learning, unlearning, and relearning. Which, Margaret, it's funny. We are doing an episode on learning. <laughs> we end with unlearning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And with that, I guess we'll go to our outro. And with that, we are at the end of our episode. And if you want to hear more stories about medicine or lifelong learning, let us know. If you found this episode inspiring, please share with your colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. Tweet us, leave us a comment on our website or Instagram or Facebook page. This episode was made as a part of the digital education track at BIDMC. Thank you to all our great educators and mentors. As always, we love hearing feedback. Email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions.